Hey, Mike. Hi, Caleb. How's it going? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing pretty well here. What are you drinking tonight? I have a themed cocktail. Uh, you've, you've inspired me. Excellent. So I have a pickle martini. I don't understand what that means. Tonight, we're going to talk about some of the ethics of autopilot and sort of the challenges of being in, in a pickle. Gotcha. So what is a pickle martini? It is a martini with instead of olive juice, it has pickle juice and I have pickles as the garnish instead of olives. Oh, so it's exactly what it sounds like. Exactly as it sounds. Yep. Excellent. How about you? What are you drinking? Uh, tonight, I am drinking a blood and sand since we are going to be talking about autopilot and, and cars and, and AI and ethics. I figured, you know, we got humans and silicon. There we go. Blood and sand. Uh, or, or maybe it's just because I had a fresh orange. You know, mm. who's to say? Double, double theme drink. This is we're we're winning. <laughs> so what's been going on? What do we want to talk about tonight? Did you hear about the Tesla news this week? I did. Yes. It was revealed this week that there was a fatality involving a Tesla Model S with autopilot enabled. Uh, it happened in uh, this May. We're not going to get too much into it tonight, but essentially this is the first fatality in around 130 or so million miles with, with autopilot and the National Highway Safety Transportation Authority has been investigating. Tesla alerted them as soon as it happened, but it still brings up sort of the unfortunate truth that we all knew would happen at some point that someone would uh, unfortunately die during the use of autopilot. So I think it's sort of uh, an unfortunate backdrop for our discussion tonight, um, which we had planned already, but uh, sort of for a discussion of the ethics of uh, autonomous driving. Um, but I think next week or the week after, we'll, we'll dig in more deeply into sort of how uh, these investigations happen and, and uh, what we might be able to learn from the uh, airline industry. Right, right. So we'll, we'll stick a pin in that and save it for, uh, let's say, the next episode of the episode yeah, after. Yeah, next episode. So uh, I know you've been very uh, eager to discuss the ethics of, of uh, self-driving cars, but what's the backdrop for this? Why is this important? Why is it even something we're going to talk about with the and the listening audience. Yeah, so autonomous vehicles, uh, it's pretty widely believed that they are going to drastically reduce the number of accidents, the number of crashes, the number of incidents that happen, mm -hmm. but they are still going to happen. Most people never actually think about what's going to happen in the case of an accident. Uh, there's a pretty strong, you could almost say cognitive dissonance uh, with regards to the dangers of auto travel. No one ever actually thinks they're going to be the ones involved in an accident. An accident right. is, is something that happens to other people. Everyone kind of thinks that they're a good driver, despite all the uh, statistical evidence to the contrary. Um, there's almost sort of an automotive Dunning-Kruger effect going on mm -hmm. uh, where people uh, think that they're going to be able to react properly and, you know, have that sort of matrix bullet time to avoid any sort of obstacles. And, and there's a sort of collective delusion, sort of everyone has this idea of being a Hollywood stunt driver or, or whatever. But the reality is that tens of thousands of people die every year uh, just in the U.S. in auto accidents. Yeah. Um, and then even if we actually manage to reduce that number by 90 percent, which uh, there's a McKinsey report that estimates that autonomous vehicles will reduce that by 90 percent, which means, you know, you're going to be saving 29,000 lives a year that wouldn't otherwise be dying based on, I think this, this is the 2013 numbers. Mm -hmm. That still means you're going to have three or 4,000 fatal incidents every year. And that's just the U.S. Just in the U.S. Yeah, way more worldwide. Yeah, if you expand that globally, you're talking like 10 million lives per decade. So, you know, a million lives a year. So it's, it's a pretty big deal. And, and if you take a high level approach and don't drill into the details it's easy to just say that computers will be so much better drivers than humans that there won't be accidents. But 
ultimately you're going to have accidents. I mean, whether it's software bugs or acts of God, like earthquakes or hail or tree branches falling or deers or moose jumping out in the road, things that will happen that are outside of the reaction time of even the fastest sensor systems that will be on an autonomous vehicle. So what will happen in those situations? Yeah, I think the big thing here is that as much as these cars are going to be safer, they will not be perfectly safe. And that we all have to be intellectually honest with ourselves that no car driving at, you know, 100 kilometers or 65 miles an hour will ever be perfectly safe because there are fundamental physics that cause vehicles to take a while to stop. Um, that even with all fully autonomous cars, like you mentioned, uh, there will be environmental factors outside the control of those vehicles. And so there will always be some risk and the vehicle will need to be assessing that risk and making decisions about where to put the vehicle. And also there will be things that break and fail, software that will have bugs. And so I think you're right. Like the fundamental truth is that there is going to be decisions that need to be made by these vehicles explicitly or implicitly. And there are as a result, ethical decisions and ethical concerns to be discussed in terms of what these cars are going to do. I mean, right? What is what is the car going to do when it is faced with these tough challenges? And it hasn't really been discussed much yet because the drivers are still, you know, liable. But just because you're liable for something doesn't mean you abdicate the responsibility of the ethics. And as that shift goes more and more from the human driver being responsible to the car, these issues that we haven't had to deal with before are going to surface. You know, we haven't had to codify the ethics of a lot of these decisions in law because there's no way to enforce them on humans. You, you had some interesting stuff we were chatting about, like how humans actually are not making decisions in the way that we think of decisions in these sorts of cases. They're actually just sort of responding. Yeah, that's a pretty useful approach to thinking about this, where we have laws of the road. We have a set of laws and customs for how we drive and how we interact with other vehicles on the road, but they're not super granular. They're more vague principles mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And a lot of that is because human response times, they're just not fast enough to make actual considered decisions in these rare accident events. And because you don't actually have time to to think these things through, it's just pure reaction. You're just reacting to whatever happens for better or worse. Uh, often for worse in these in these mm -hmm. instances and it's an important distinction this idea of reaction versus decision whereas you're just reacting to what's happening in front of you i mean by the time your eyes register the light coming in your brain registers what your eyes saw the electrical impulses travel down to your muscles i mean you're talking probably like half a second or more before you can even react to something and when you're traveling at like 60 70 miles an hour that's just not enough time to to react quickly. So you're just essentially twitching your muscles and hoping for the best. Whereas when you actually have a computer that's processing information at, you know, millions or billions of times per second, it can actually assess the situation and make an actual considered decision. And that's where this idea of autonomous vehicle ethics comes into play, because when you can actually make a decision in one of these instances, how do you decide 
what to do like what what drives that decision yeah i mean i think one really concrete thing that was eye-opening for me in, in doing some of the research for this and digging into what ethicists and uh, law professors have talked about in terms of ethical decision making for autonomous cars which is a new field of study it's real and, and happening <laughs> a really like very simple one was the idea of ethics is really around transferring risk from one person to another and the idea that if you're driving and there's a cyclist on the side of the road cycling and you you sort of cross over a double yellow line to provide more room for them so that you know there's a bigger buffer between you and the cyclist that's an ethical decision because you're imparting more risk on oncoming vehicles because your car is now in their space and it shouldn't be. And you've technically broken the law of moving your car across the double yellow line, which is not legal, but you've made this decision to provide less risk to the cyclist, but you're now moving that risk onto yourself and onto potential oncoming cars. And we do this all the time as drivers, sort of learned behavior from being drivers and seeing how other people behave. But those behaviors need to be programmed in uh, either through explicitly or through machine learning algorithms or through observing human drivers. But those are ethical decisions that, you know, that's a very simple example of one, but you can imagine how those uh, there's there's hundreds of those miniature examples that we all behave when we drive every day and self-driving cars are going to need to have a way to make those decisions, even though they may be small and that those small decisions will compound and potentially lead to uh, very severe outcomes. So I think that's sort of what we wanted to dig into tonight. So yeah, you mentioned the ethicists and the, the philosophy behind it, and there is actually a classic philosophical exercise called the trolley problem, which if you've taken a philosophy 101 course, you've probably heard of this. It's a pretty classic thought experiment. The idea of it is there's a trolley uh, uh, on rails, and you're standing there along the tracks near a switch that can switch it from one, one track to another. And this trolley is coming down the hill, and it's out of control and it's heading towards a group of five people and those five people do not have time to move if you flip the switch you can actually derail it onto the second set of tracks and it will only kill one person there's one person sitting there who who won't have time to react so the thought experiment is what do you do in this case like do you actually let it happen and have five people die do you pull the switch and redirect the trolley causing only one person to die mm -hmm. so one of the one of the interesting aspects here is that there's the potential to do nothing and so doing nothing will cause them to die but i didn't actively kill those people they were on a course that was going to lead them to die and so my efforts to heroically save them and potentially kill someone else i'm now infringing on that person who i flipped the switch and now i'm actively ensuring that they die and so i think it really, it does come down to your own personal code of, of how you view the world. And, and that's what this thought experiment reveals. Right. I think I tend to drive towards a utilitarian sort of maximization of, of general good. And so I think if my hand was already on the switch, you know, pulling the switch to save the five and uh, potentially kill the, the, the other person or having a high confidence that they would die, I think is, is where I would personally uh, fall on, on that spectrum. Uh, but yeah, there's some more variations that would cause me not to do that. 
Yeah, like I said, there are some variations on this where this is more of an indirect action. Uh, there's a variation on it where let's say you're standing on an overpass and the trolley is out of control going underneath the overpass and you're standing right behind an extremely fat man. And you know that if you push that fat man down onto the tracks, he will stop the trolley and save the five people. Do you actually take an active role and push that fat man down, killing him and saving five people? Or do you not and let it hit five people? Um, and then there's, you know, there's other variations, too, of like, well, what if that fat man is your father or your brother? How does that factor into it? Yeah. And some of the Tesla executives that have even been asked some of these um, philosophical, ethical questions at different times. And they sort of skirt the issue by saying, well, we'll just make sure that we stop the trolley. Um, <laughs> That's cheating. Yeah. And so they, in public, they choose not to address the core ethical issue at hand and sort of push to, well, um, we think there are technological advances we can make and these don't actually happen in the real world. That all of these are, these really tough situations are actually a, a series of unfortunate events that are chained together versus a contrived ethical philosophical 101 kind of uh, thought experiment yeah but i do think that like the idea in the application for self-driving cars is like you're driving behind a truck and they're you're boxed in there's a car to your right there's a car to your left or there's a, a motorcyclist to one side and uh debris starts coming off the truck and if you don't swerve it's going to cause you to potentially be impaled if you swerve to the right, you might hit the, the motorcyclist and the motorcyclist will die. If you swerve to the left, you'll hit the car and you both will be in an accident. And those are not that hard to imagine happening. Right. I think even if you try and, and thread the needle and say, well, I'll sort of move my car a little bit to the left in between the lanes and hope that the other car starts moving over and keep pushing, you've made a decision. That is a actual decision and whether or not it's explicit where there's sort of a codified set of rules of what the car will do, or it's just looking for the optimal path, you know, what the optimal path in air quotes is, is encoded, right? If, if you know that the one to your right is a motorcycle and you assess that a motorcycle's risk of injury is higher, you've now encoded some ethical standard that, you know, you're not going to put that person at the same risk as you will someone in a suburban. Right. And if you actually swerve and hit the motorcycle, you're putting yourself in less risk, too, because a motorcycle is less likely to cause damage to your vehicle than hitting the Suburban on the other side would. Yeah. And actually, um, in preparing, I, I found a study that was super fascinating. They These researchers, their hypothesis was that these ethical issues are going to come up and will be real. And that uh, because these will be private businesses selling these vehicles, that they will want to be on the side of public opinion. And so they wanted to understand to the best of their ability what public opinion was on some of these ethical issues to try and make some recommendations around at least what the general populace thinks are the right decisions to make for these types of decisions. So they pose a similar situation. And what they found, I guess, not so surprisingly, is that people hope that the car minimizes general damage and harm in the abstract but when it's their car, they hope it protects them at all costs. <laughs> of course. And so in the general system design, they hope that they minimize damage. But for themselves, I would like the self-driving car that protects me and is a safe cocoon, which is, you know, obviously a paradox, but certainly reveals the, I think, really tough intellectual challenges around this and the public opinion and public perception around risk and probability 
It's not something humans are set up to deal with very well. We actively choose not to think about it. Yeah, exactly. Like you were mentioning at the beginning, the challenges of people not really understanding how risky it is to drive. This holiday weekend, I was driving to Los Angeles and that's, you know, 700 miles on the highway. And there were a few times where I was watching cars in front of me swerve in front of other cars, dodge into lanes that they shouldn't be in, merge in really unpredictable ways. And many times they were close, close accidents. And it is very dangerous (laughs) out there driving right now. And I really wish I had been driving in an autopilot car for for many reasons. But one of them is hopefully that I will be safer. But um, it's certainly very possible that you are the one in the accident as much as you hope that is never true. And that if you are, you are not going to be the one making the decision is what happens. And so I think it's going to be really important that people have some understanding of how this is going to be done and how to think about when these accidents happen. So what are some of the frameworks we can use to think about how to make these decisions? Like what what should the programmers and the Tesla engineers and the Audi engineers and BMW engineers be thinking about? Like, should they be hiring ethicists and philosophers onto their team? Or <laughs> like, what what is the what is the path forward? All right, let me let me step back. Um, you did mention that the first reaction is to say that cars are going to not get in accidents. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's an important caveat to introduce that, yes, there's going to be less accidents, but there still will be some. And this whole discussion is around however small the number is in that small number, what happens? Yeah. So I, I think like immediately you can disqualify this idea of, well, the car will just do some sort of magic maneuver to get out of it. You know, if we'll allow the fact that now 99% of the time the car can do a magic maneuver, but that 1% of the time, what's going to happen? Yeah. And that's an uncomfortable place for technologists to be is worrying about the edge case. Right. So much of technology is worrying about the majority case, the 90% or 80%. And even in the case you described, like the 99%. We would all be extremely happy if if the things we built were working at that level. And only a very, very small percentage of people in the world have to worry about things operating at 99.999% success. And those are very rare nuclear power plants, space, data centers, banking systems, I don't know. There's, a, there's. I'm sure I'm missing some, but like there are very <laughs> right. few industries where that is sort of the level of rigor. Uh, I guess aircraft, uh, cars are now going to be moving into that realm, and people building software for cars that have never had to worry about that sort of level of integrated precision. I guess each individual part has had to operate at a really high level, but they've never been required to worry about the system as a whole, uh, I think is probably fair. Right. Making the executive decisions. Yeah. Yeah. They're not making higher level ethical decisions there. The part either fails or it succeeds. And if a part fails, we we get upset that their part failed. um, But we don't think there was malice usually involved. And, And these decisions that we're talking about you could imagine people being really disgusted at some of the decisions that are made or really, really upset and viscerally concerned about how these decisions were made and not being able to do anything about it until after the fact. And, and so making these decisions and thinking about this, I think, is going to be really, really important. And even if it's not something that can even really be dealt with yet because the technology isn't possible you know, people are still in control of the cars. We've already talked about in previous episodes that we're going to be at a spot in, in 20 or 30 years where this is going to be very real day in day kind of stuff. 
And I don't think it's unreasonable to imagine that these companies need to be thinking about this today, especially when they imagine that their car programs are six years. I mean, they, they've got maybe five new car launches until this is a, a very real, live, active problem. Right. And it's the sort of thing where we don't want to actually start thinking about it once it's an actual issue. We want to have thought about it ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. This is... <laughs> We've, we've had a lot of time to worry about these other issues, and this is going to be hitting us at a very fast clip, so we need to think about it in advance. Yeah, so we're talking about different variations on the philosophical issues, and, and one of the interesting things is if you imagine instead of having a motorcycle on one side and a car on the other side, what if there are two motorcycles mm-hmm. on either side of you, and one rider is wearing a helmet and the other one is not? Do you actually hit the rider with the helmet because they're more likely to survive, or do you hit the rider without the helmet because they're already being risky and you would ultimately if you hit the rider with the helmet you're punishing them for actually being safe if you're avoiding the rider without the helmet then you're getting into some sort of moral hazard problem here where you're actually safer to not wear a helmet while riding a motorcycle because a car is going to pick you out in the event of an accident. Yeah, Um, exactly. Or or even worrying about like the age of the person, right? Like, is this an older person driving or a younger person? Right. Who is this person? Do we know that this person by a quick scan of their license plate is someone who's very important to the community and this other person is not, or this other person's a criminal or a past criminal? All these things that as a driver today, you swerve to avoid the accident and whatever happens sort of happens. It isn't something that in our day-to-day lives we're worrying about and thinking through which way would I swerve because in the moment we're not going to be making those decisions as you, as you mentioned. But right. as, as a car that senses those two options, at any moment it is aware of what's around it and will need to create a new best path for the vehicle. And where it chooses to put the vehicle will be encoding those decisions. Yeah. And and like you mentioned, we're going to need to expand the teams that are building these things out from just technologists and, and ideally starting to pull in people who've thought about these sort of problems to more of a multidisciplinary team. You want to get some philosophers, some ethicists in here. And yeah, looking on the field of philosophy and what schools of philosophy are relevant to this issue uh, the, the the main school of thought that seems to come up is this idea of utilitarianism. Yeah. It was something put forth by Jeremy Bentham, who was an English philosopher in the, I want to say, 18th century. Yeah. 17 or 1800s. Yeah. His philosophy was, it is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong, which is really a fancy way of saying uh, you should always act to provide the the greatest amount of good. To society, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's a form of what's called consequentialism, which is a school of thought that says that it's the consequences of an action that determines whether it's right or wrong, which can be summed up as saying the ends justify the means, that whatever the action you've you've chosen, it doesn't matter why you chose it, it's what was the result of it. That's what decides whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing. Right. And so in an idealized situation where we all agree on what's good, you could potentially execute this theory pretty well. But in a world where the people encoding these decisions have different points of view on what the, the maximum good and maximum benefit is, would lead to very different outcomes. Yeah, definitely. So there was a, a philosopher who picked up on Bentham School of Thought, another English philosopher called John Stuart Mill. And uh, he 
picked up on this idea of utilitarianism and, and introduced this idea of the quality or level of the happiness when you start talking about the, the greatest happiness. Yeah. This, this kind of relates back to when you were mentioning that when you're making these decisions, is it an elderly person or is it a child? Is it a felon or is it a mother of three? Or this idea of it's not just the pure numbers of the lives you're saving, but the the actual quality of those lives or the, I mean, quality sounds like a harsh word right there, but yeah. Yeah. Obviously one of the challenges with this is like, it, it seems very fluid. There's no, this is right or wrong. It's purely based on the situational impact and the outcome. Right. And also, mm, well, certainly much of economics is built on the idea that people are rational and trying to optimize themselves. And that when you optimize for your own self-interest, ultimately many things lead to people operating well and that if you have people trying to assume what is good for other people they're pretty bad at making those decisions um so yeah certainly some some challenges with this idea but i think it certainly appeals to a uh an idealism that's um in the idea that you can uh try and predict uh, i can assess the situation i can see that there will be 50 people saved by this bus being diverted and I will save them and my car and I'll sacrifice myself. And the car doing that may save the most human life, but I'm the one who bought the car. And uh, I don't care about those people on the bus as much as me and my family. And so uh, I don't want you encoding this utilitarianism point of view into my car. Uh, I want the car to protect myself. So where, where can I turn if I want that? So Essentially, utilitarianism is what we would nowadays refer to as a moral relativism. Yeah. And then there's this idea of moral absolutism, like a Kantianism named after Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher. And this is a, the, the official word is a deontological philosophy, which is deontological is I I believe that just means like duty based. Yeah, um, duty science. Yeah. So this is the idea that there's a universal moral code that should always be followed. And that it's not the consequences of the action that matter, but it's the motives behind it. This is probably very familiar to people who follow the morality code of a religion or even Star Trek fans who, who, who follow the prime directive. This idea that regardless of the immediate consequences of, of whatever action you're taking, that there's this overarching philosophical code that you should be adhering to. Yeah. And, and that you can express this point of view in a code. Right. That you can outline what the rules are and codify them and you can follow them. So the Ten Commandments, yeah. you know, the Prime Directive, <laughs> Asimov's Three Rules of Robotics, that, that you can actually write them all down, where in the relativism, you have to take the situation into account and that it's sort of an on-the-fly decision-making probabilistic kind of thing where this sort of code system is much more absolute that the ends do not justify the means your your intentions matter quite a lot and uh, even if you fail you may still have been just and moral in your pursuit even if uh, a lot of people died right right so Kant had this idea of um and I want to say it's a categorical imperative yeah 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 the idea is basically that any sort of rule that you have has to be universally applicable. Um, so, that, you know, whatever small decision you're making in your little micro environment to determine if that's like morally acceptable, you need to scale that out to think like, what if everyone did this? And is that still something that's correct to do? Yeah. And if not, then it fails that test. And then that does not conform to this universal moral code. Because didn't Rawls pick up on that a bit with his veil of ignorance concept of like, well, if you can't predict where you'll be in life, that the best code and the best political system and ethical system and legal system would be one that 
regardless of the type of person you are in this society, you will be happy. Right. If you don't know where you're going to end up in a system when you're designing it, will you change how you design it? Yeah. So I guess tying it back to the self-driving cars before we turn into a philosophy podcast, (laughs) in, in that world, it would be like, regardless of what car I'm in, in that situation we described of sort of the car behind the truck and the SUV and the motorcycle, right? that the the Rawls point of view would be, if you can't predict which of those vehicles you're in, you would want to design a system that you have the best hope of survival in any of those particular situations. Does that seem fair? Yeah. And interestingly, I think that might be the best way to uh, bring the masses on board with thinking about this. You know, if you if you're thinking about it as far as like, I always want to protect myself in the car, then, you know, people inherently understand that. But if you're actually thinking about, you know, I don't know which position I'm going to be in, then you know, you might actually be more OK with with uh, different ethical decisions being made, which is the whole point of the, the, of the whole veil of ignorance. Yeah, especially if the majority of cars are not self-driving, right? Like if yeah. you have robot cars that are very good at making decisions about protecting only their driver. I think people will be quite upset if these cars start driving into motorists and start driving into motorcyclists because a self-driving car that kills someone else is going to be a, a very different situation. It's one thing for, for an accident to, to kill the driver, but it's, it's definitely something else when the car actively moves into your lane and kills people in your car. Right. And is it is it targeting you because you're in a newer vehicle that has more safety systems? And is it avoiding older cars that don't have airbags? Is that therefore penalizing you for having a five-star crash-rated car versus like someone driving in their old Camaro? And then th- there's this whole idea too of, of we've, we've mentioned a couple of times now of um, like your own self-interest or, you know, protecting the the occupant of the vehicle, because that seems like a logical thing that that I'm I'm purchasing this car. I, I'm concerned about the crash ratings, the airbags. Uh, I want it to protect me as I'm traveling around. And I, I think that taps into this this school of thought, which is ethical egoism, mm. which is basically the idea of doing what's in your own best interest. And this is similar to uh, libertarianism or objectivism, if you're more of an Ayn Rand person. And these are the type of people that are currently very overrepresented in the tech world. Uh, the people who will be building these cars probably have more of a libertarian bent. They've probably read Atlas Shrugged a few times. And yeah, these these philosophies that they tend to hold would lead to more of this individualist approach where they're going to protect the occupant of the vehicle at all costs. And And yeah, this sort of feeds into this idea of right now there's serious diversity issues in tech where there's a sort of a monoculture of of people based on the types of of people and their philosophies and uh, the more different people we can bring into this with different points of view and different philosophical schools of thought the better these systems that we're designing will be yeah i mean i guess i'd push back a little bit on that just on the on the fact that even if I look at something like uh, an SUV, right, that people who want an SUV and the people building SUVs, making a car that's thousands of pounds heavier, that is much higher up, um, that is much a stronger chassis, potentially safer for the occupant, is not necessarily taking into account the fact that the majority of cars are smaller than it, that weigh less than it. And so when it gets into an accident, it's not necessarily safer absolutely because it is a better car. It's safer because it's a better car in comparison to another, and so it can withstand the 
physical impact better. So that's already a thing that car manufacturers are, are most interested in the person who bought the car. And as a result of the market leading more and more cars wanting to be safer and, and them needing to compete for the consumer buying those cars, overall cars get safer. That car isn't trying to be safer for the person it hits. It's trying to be safer for the person who it's protecting and its occupant. Now, the counter to that would be, I guess, there are regulations, especially more stringent in, in Europe, around pedestrian safety, and that there is more and more being done to make sure that cars, when they strike a pedestrian, are better to ensure that the pedestrian isn't killed, but is injured or, or can actually walk away from it by the way that they mold the hoods, um, the way that they can scoop the pedestrian up. And it all sounds very terrible, but it, <laughs> it is actually built to make pedestrians safer that we actually sort of rely on the government to worry about uh, the protection of others outside of the vehicle itself. So um, what do you say to that? Like, is that... Uh, sorry, not, <laughs> what do you say, sir? Not to put you on the spot, but I guess like yeah. trying to dig in more and really start unpacking this, because I'm sure people listening are like wanting to pull their hair out. Like, we're just talking about this in such abstract terms. Like, what should Tesla be doing? What do we think should actually be happening? Well, it's interesting that you mention safety of, of cars and especially of, of hitting pedestrians, too, because historically, automobile manufacturers have a terrible record on this. I mean, the whole reason we know who Ralph Nader is, is because he created a, this whole firestorm in the 1960s with his Unsafe at Any Speed book, which was just railing against the car companies of the day where they were maximizing profits and they were actively fighting against safety features. Back in the 60s, there was no standard transmission gear ordering. So when you stepped in from one car to another, like shifting from reverse to park was different. Some cars didn't even have a park gear. Um, they had chrome all over the interior. So like dashboard reflections were causing people to get blinded temporarily and causing accidents. They weren't inflating their tires properly because they wanted the car to perform better, which was causing accidents. Right. And you mentioned pedestrians. They were designing these crazy grills that had all of this chrome and these weird angles on them that were actually actively pulling pedestrians underneath the cars when they got in accidents. And there was this whole revolution that started in the 1960s where essentially this the consumer action driven by Ralph Nader's book and the movement behind it caused the government to set up safety organizations, set up standards and drag the automotive manufacturers into this safer environment. And then now in, in when we talk about the past like couple of decades, cars have been getting safer and safer and safer, but that was not always the case. Yeah, I, I tend to think that, so getting to what we I think personally, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, I think the path forward from here and, and I, what I think will actually happen is the following, that uh, the technology of sensing is still not good enough. And so the cars cannot identify what's happening well enough to actually be fully responsible. And so for many years still, people driving the car will ultimately be considered responsible. And so this will be a, a non-issue in the talking points for these car companies. And it will be, you know, we, we, we are continuing to try and improve the safety of the vehicles. And in rare occasions, individuals need to still be in control at all times, but it's still better. And then we'll reach a point where the cars are, are starting to reach level three and four autonomy and are fully driving us. And that's when these are these issues will start coming up. And I think that this is where regulators, I think they will be aware of these issues because um, there'll be plenty of people who are anti self-driving cars who will be bringing these questions to their ear. 
And I think what will actually happen is similar to what we have with airlines, and we can talk about this in the future, is um, this sort of idea that there will be a um, an expert panel or review or, or some sort of, I think, open process where car companies will need to demonstrate how their systems are designed to perform in a series of tests and sort of scenarios and need to explain how well it works in those different scenarios and panels of experts and sort of judges basically uh, make recommendations around how they should be performing and that when issues arrive when crashes happen in these rare circumstances that uh, are not easily explained by that sort of bring into question the the decision the car made. They will be reviewed and investigated, and their findings will be made public. And the the automakers will need to have a response for for what happened. And I think it will be the the actual implementation and sort of public concern and overreaction around these incidents that will cause the companies selling these systems to invest and disclose at greater and greater amounts how they're making these decisions. But in the beginning, they won't actually be making these decisions because their systems aren't even capable of having a point of view on what's happening. They're just trying to do something correct and they'll fail. And even autopilot on airplanes still isn't really making these sorts of decisions. They'll issue warning lights that they're stalling or that there's something wrong and then the pilot has to intervene. Right. And so even with airplanes, we still are at the point where the pilots have to be trained on that particular aircraft to be good enough to to fly it and know how to interpret those signals. And so I think ultimately we're still a decade plus away from these issues really coming to the fore. And I think it's still unpredictable at how how good these cars will be at making these decisions and, and sort of coming up with that third option that, you know, we joked at in the beginning of, well, don't hit anything. <laughs> uh, and, and basically figuring out how to ensure that they break and then swerve behind the other car and move to the next lane. That that these scenarios um, become so diminishingly rare that um, they're not codified, they're not planned in advance. It is purely operating at this goal of don't hit anything, that they, they, they basically find ways to do that safely. But yeah, it's, it's going to be super fascinating. What's your, what's your take? How do you think this is going to shake out? It's hard to say how it's going to shake out in the interim. No matter how much we reduce it, I think that the possibility is going to be there where an ethical decision is going to have to be made. And I think that there's this opportunity for hand-waving where we can say, oh, things are going to be safer or it's going to be extremely rare, but it's not going to be zero. So given that there is a non-zero chance of these things happening, at some point, the computer is going to have to decide what to do. And it'll be really interesting to see how those things get handled and is it going to be something where it's more prescriptive, where we have some method or some sort of philosophy that's put out and uh, is then adhered to by the systems that are being designed? Or is it something where, like you say, it's more iterative and we're just going to like do the best we can, whatever that means? Uh, I mean, ultimately, someone somewhere is going to be programming something. Um, but one one thing that that is also interesting here is is how these ethical decisions might differ depending on what the ultimate ownership model of these vehicles are. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're actually going out and shopping 
for a self-driving vehicle, you're probably going to be more interested in a self-preservation <laughs> set of ethics. Or if you're Uber or, or some other fleet, uh, then you might have a different set of considerations. You know, maybe you want to minimize damage or minimize liability. Maybe if there's one occupant that dies, that's less of a problem than if you actually run into five people on the sidewalk. I, I think we're getting into the uh, uncomfortably detached world of actuarial tables mm -hmm. at a certain point here. But I mean, ultimately, it, just because it is a difficult thing to discuss doesn't mean that it can be avoided. So, I, I mean, I think that's pretty interesting. And like, yeah, and even if you are in, in a world where you're shopping for your own vehicle, are these driving ethics going to be a global thing that all cars are adhering to? Or, yeah. or is it like a differentiated feature of different vehicles? Like maybe Toyota has a more friendly ethic and, and there's some sort of uh, more aggressive car company that has a get you there faster and damn the torpedoes sort of ethical model installed on it. Well, also location. Do different countries have different social expectations around how you make these decisions? I mean, we've been you know, our own experience is colored by being Americans and going through our education system and our cultural mores, but people <laughs> in Europe or people in Asia or people in Australia or, you know, other countries have, and different continents have very different points of view on how some of these decisions should be made. And we certainly have a very Western European influence, philosophical background. Yeah. Asia has a very different historical context and philosophical background for how to, you know, think about life and making these sorts of decisions and responsibility to others. So you could also imagine that these things are very culturally based, you know, even, even Google already has this concept built in because when they, in the way that they, in very small, super quick example of, they've just started having the self-driving cars use their horn. And in, in the Eastern states, um, it behaves differently because horns are used differently in New York and Boston than they are in <laughs> California. And so if you were to put the Boston coding on California, you'd be a very aggressive driver and probably cause more challenges. But in Boston, it, it might be much more common to use your horn in general driving. And so to imagine that going to other countries, it isn't surprising that there may even be just totally different laws around how these decisions need to be made. So, yeah. you know, it, it may be that this software is localized from where the cars are actually driving. And, and that brings up so many issues as well. Like, why can't I have the, the Japanese version of uh, the ethic code on my Tesla? Yeah, where they're being developed too, right? Because China is actually putting a lot of research in. True. Yeah, the people the people coding it are going to implicitly bring many of their biases uh, to to the way that they're created. Yeah, and when you're talking about people coming from more of a, a Taoist or Confucianism tradition, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, and then how much of this is trade secrets, and how much of it is is transparent. Yeah, and how much of it can even be described? I think one of the words we haven't even used in the podcast today that I was expecting we'd be talking about a lot is emergent behavior. The <laughs> idea that it. It isn't actually predictable in advance of what will happen, that it, it will be operating from a smaller set of goals and uh, similar to sort of the Asimov idea, but a bit more filled out that every microsecond it, it's trying to create a, a drivable safe path. And that's, uh, in many cases, that will be totally possible. And at some points, there's this idea that there's an unavoidable accident. And um, no matter what point you choose, there's going to be some collision. And it's those discussions that we're really talking about here is when, when even the computer knows it has to hit something, what does it choose to hit? And to what degree does it know what it's hitting? And what is the likelihood that that is going to cause harm? 
and how good are those computers at predicting that? And I think those are the types of things that I just don't think are even really being worried about too much now, honestly, because they're just trying, you know, to even stay in the lane or, you know, <laughs> notice that that's a stop sign. Yeah. But I mean, something has to be looking ahead, right? At, no, I know. I know. But I, I mean, I think it's not a surprise that it's not being talked about because it, it's, it's still theoretical because there's so many more core issues that like until the thing is even driving, I think Google is probably the only one that's really worrying about this, you know, actively because they have talked about the issues of the difference between a deer in the road and a bunny or a cat, right? Like running over someone's dog is different than running over a, a wild rabbit or something. And whether or not people like that or not, I think many would agree that there is something different about running over someone's house cat or dog. And you feel slightly differently about that, um, potentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think we have, a, I'm really curious to hear what the comments are for this discussion, because I think this will bring out hopefully a lot of discussion and thoughts and things that we didn't talk about. And I, I think we'll definitely talk about this again, because I think there'll be more and more discussion about this. Uh, so I guess in wrapping it up, where can people tell us what they thought about the episode? Oh, we're wrapping up. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, yeah. If you have any thoughts on schools, the thought that we missed, um, we, we didn't talk too much about fiction, too. Like we were mostly talking about actual philosophy and, and maybe some applied philosophy. But if there's there's a whole world of fiction, I guess we briefly mentioned Asimov and the famous Three Laws of Robotics. And uh, interestingly, most of his books like address all the different ways those go fail. wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, there's, there's probably a lot of maybe science fiction is, is the best uh, place for this, but yeah, any sort of recommendations around that, you can hit us up at our subreddit at r slash the Tesla show or on Twitter at the Tesla show, especially anyone who, who has different, uh, philosophical thoughts, different uh, people from different countries, that would be great. Um, although we're only broadcasting in English, so that might curtail that, uh, reach. We have, we have listeners in a lot of countries and uh, a lot of bilingual oh, folks. So, um, yeah, definitely, uh, hit us up. Definitely curious about your thoughts. And, um, if you like the show, we'd uh, definitely appreciate a review in iTunes. Um, and uh, we've, we've gotten a lot of reviews recently and it's been really great. So, yeah. um, they definitely are, are nice. We read them and we see them and, um, they apparently help uh, get new listeners to discover the show. And otherwise, um, we'll be back in about a week with another episode. So talk to you later, Mike. Sounds good. Talk to you later.